Stephen Bartholomew is the Senior Business Columnist at the Herald. Stephen, good afternoon to you. Uh, good afternoon, Michael. I don't think you're right there, by the way. <laughs> now, uh, this big news coming through in the last half hour or so from a Hong Kong court, uh, China Evergrande, the world's most indebted property developer, one of the world's biggest developers, of course, uh, has been ordered into liquidation. Now, effectively, when we talk about liquidation in a company in the Australian sense, it means it's going to be wound up by court order. Is, is that what's happened here? Well, that's the court order. Whether that's precisely how it works is yet to be seen. Given that most of the debt is held offshore um, and most of the assets are held on mainland China. And so even though there's supposedly an agreement between the Hong Kong legal system and China that China will recognise Hong Kong judgments, I think everyone's going to watch and wait, wait and see what actually happens here because Evergrande has this massive portfolio of incomplete projects in mainland China. Yes. Uh, and uh, I don't know whether they really want those either dumped on the market or demolished anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, how effectively or feasibly would you liquidate a company like this? Because, the, I mean, the debt is $450 billion Australian. It is eye-watering. They've been simply unable to uh, recoup that in any way. Uh, the justice in Hong Kong, Linda Chan, said, quote-unquote, enough is enough after 18 months of failure, basically, by Evergrande to effectively communicate or resolve this situation. But obviously, there's still a lot of real estate infrastructure on their books. So what would a liquidation look like? <laughs> Your guess is probably as good as mine. I mean, the, I've spoken to some of the creditors over the journey, and they don't expect to get anything more than a couple of out of this. In that simply for a few cents in the dollar, um, mainly because a lot of these projects would need tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars more to complete them. Yeah. Uh, so so you know, what, what this will look like at the end of the day, I, I think, is tr- tremendously un- unclear. I mean, is there potential um, that the Chinese government step in and take it over? Um, there's potential that it might take over some of the projects or some of the local governments might take over some of the projects and fund them through to, to completion. Um, the government's already been creating funds and putting pressure on state-owned banks to fund some of the better developers, if there is such a thing in China at the moment. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, they've, they've been uh, extending bank loans, creating incentives for people to buy homes to try and get some activity going. But the, the market keeps dropping. So sales volumes and sales prices are still falling. And this is after you know, nearly three years of a property crisis. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first, but this is the big daddy. Uh, from mid-2021, I read that Hong Kong courts have ordered the liquidation, I think, of at least three Chinese developers. Uh, this, I think, would be the fourth, but th- this dwarfs the lot, I would imagine. But, uh, but the, the, the previous ones are quite small. Yeah, but nonetheless, it's, it's, I suppose, all symbolic or emblematic, isn't it, of the overall picture that is now emerging, where you know the, the Chinese government particularly incentivised and encouraged the building of these massive developments and in some cases ghost cities effectively all over China to stimulate economic growth and to drive the economy and to give jobs to people, you know, like, like effectively any Ponzi scheme, that the bubble's starting to burst. If you look at that post-2008 global financial crisis period, it was property infrastructure investment which has powered the Chinese economy. Property accounts, for, or did account for between 25 and 30% of China's GDP. So, yeah, it, it was definitely state-sponsored and encouraged. Um, and state ended. So, you know, when they started getting concerned about the extent of the leverage in the sector, 
back in 2020. Uh, and Xi Jinping introduced the three red lines policy, which is basically just restrictions on leverage amount of debt to assets and cash flows. Um, that just punctured the bubble, uh, and they haven't been able to stop it deflating since. So, yeah, it's... Uh, so what does this uh, mean for Australia? Because, of course, you know, a lot of our wealth has stemmed from the fact that China has been buying coal and particularly iron ore from Australia. A lot of the iron ore is going into steel, which goes into construction programs. Uh, if, if the companies behind the construction programs are going bust left, right and centre, in fact, courts are ordering them to wind up, uh, what does that mean for our long-term economic prospect? Well, you'd say the long-term outlook for iron ore, coal's a different kettle of fish, but the iron ore, you'd say the long-term prospect is for lower um, demand, um, but still significant demand. Certainly, you know, when the construction bubble was going full bore, um, demand for iron ore went, and, and um, infrastructure investment, um, demand for iron ore went through the roof and so did the price. We're back to... I think it's about $135 US a ton at the moment. So it's not a, that's, that's not an appalling price. No, it's still strong. Yeah, it is. Uh, so there's clearly there's still a sufficient level of demand, mainly out of China and, and its neighbouring economies. Some of them are doing very well, by the way, um, places like Vietnam and Malaysia. Um, so there's still sufficient demand to sustain demand for our iron ore. Diversification, they might be key. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the miners might have to accept lower prices going forward because you've got more production coming in, from, particularly from Africa, over the next couple of years, mm. which will, will also depress the price. Just finally then, what, what does this say about the overall state of the Chinese economy? I'm pretty sure I read last week, in fact, it might have been an article by you, uh, that said that between the Shanghai and Hong Kong bourses, they're down some $9 trillion in value or net uh, uh, value or whatever over the, I think the past five or so years there's been a very very significant sell off and, and again the Chinese authorities despite the fact that it's a command control economy and the rest uh, seem incapable of stemming the hemorrhaging um, It's actually since um, it, the market peaked the Chinese markets peaked in February 2021 which is about the time when the property <laughs> um, distress started to emerge and you're right it's down $9 trillion since then and they've been unable to halt it despite putting in um, prohibitions on short selling and um, asking state-owned enterprises to buy shares and telling some um, investment institutions not to sell their shares. They try quite a lot, um, but that doesn't seem to have stopped the bleeding. Mm -hmm. And when you twin that with the property um, bubble implosion, the two great sources of household wealth in China are property and shares. Uh, Middle-class Chinese own both their own properties and generally one or two more um, as their source of wealth. There's no social welfare net there, uh, not one worth, worth uh, talking about. And so having both the shares and property markets melt down at the same time is causing a lot of pain in the heartland of the Chinese economy. Be fascinating to see if that has political ramifications at home ultimately. Well, time again will tell. Good uh, for your time, Stephen. Thank you at short notice for jumping on. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Michael. All the best. Stephen Bartholomew's here. This is the Herald Senior Business Columnist. Keep an eye on China.